Well, good morning. The first of our Bible readings this morning, it comes from Colossians chapter 1, and it's verses 9 to 14. It can be found on page 1,829 of the Black Bibles, or you can follow behind me on the screen. So first is Colossians chapter 1, 9 to 14. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have a great endurance and patience, and giving joyfully thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of his light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The second reading comes from Ephesians chapter 1, and that's verses 3 to 14. That can be just flicked a few pages back on 1,814. Ephesians chapter 1, 3 to 14. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us to be, sorry, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the time has reached their fulfilment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. And our last Bible reading, uh, if you go a bit forward to page 1824, and we're looking at Philippians chapter 2, and it's verses 5 to 11. That's Philippians chapter 2, 5 to 11. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used on his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by obedient, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue can acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Okay, well, um, thanks very much, Simon, and thanks for your lovely welcome. It's terrific to be here. Um, we have heard much about Trinity Church Unley uh, up in the city, which is where I go to church normally, and it's a great privilege to be here and actually see it uh, up in person. So uh, can I ask you, as I get ready to start, to normally I'd say open your Bibles, uh, which I'm not against that, but I've actually printed the bits of the Bible that you need on the handout, so I'll get you to take the handout instead. Uh, because as you heard, we skipped over a number of different passages, so if you don't have one, you need that. The handout is a work of art this week. As you can see, I've put pictures on to keep you interested. There are blanks to fill in. I've learned this trick from school teachers, so you need a pen so that you can follow along. Uh, and you'll find that that makes a lot more sense of the talk. Uh, I'm here for the next three weeks. Uh, as I talked with Carl at the start of the year about how it is that we in the network could be serving and partnering with Trinity Church Unley, uh, we talked about what I might preach on and uh, he was really keen for a series on the topic of guidance, that is how we go about making decisions. Um, for that reason, it's a different kind of series from normal. We're not just going to open one passage in the Bible and make our way through it. Rather, we'll pick up on a, a bunch of different themes. If you look at the top of the handout, you'll see the series is called Gospel-Driven Guidance, Discovering God's Plan for Your Life, and then each of the talks are going to pick up on different aspects of that. So this week, uh, God's will for all things. Uh, next week, God's word to us, and then finally, God's work in you. So that's, that's the kind of the shape of the series. I want to start, however, with uh, what I've called our introductory dilemma, and that's all about how to choose shampoo and Bibles. Um, a few, I think, would disagree with the observation that we're somewhat overwhelmed by choice uh, here in our city in this particular time. I got sent in recently uh, to pick up some shampoo uh, for our family, and I got to the shampoo section of Woolworths, and I stopped, and I counted, I kid you not, I counted 42 different brands of shampoo, let alone different sizes and quantities. There was shampoo for people with flat hair, for those with bouncy hair, for those with natural hair, dyed hair, those with stressed hair, and those with no hair. So there's every type of shampoo, and I was there for a long time. Of course, um, it's not limited just to the consumables that we seek to buy. I also needed to buy a new Bible. Uh, and so I went into your local Christian bookstore, and, well, choosing your Bible, if you thought shampoo was hard, I discovered that when it comes to Bibles, you can choose red-letter Bibles, Wide Margin Bibles, Life Application Bibles, here's the best part, Study Enhanced Bibles, Spirit-Filled Bibles, New Spirit-Filled Bibles, I wonder what they discovered in the interim, New Spirit Bibles for Students, which I thought was especially relevant, I discovered a Fireside Bible, a Men's Bible, a Women's Bible, a Couple's Bible, a Kid's Bible, a Heaps Good Youth Bible, and a Large Print Bible, which I take it was code for retirees. Now... We're overwhelmed by choice, aren't we? And actually, for many of us, the luxury of choice has become a burden. Uh, for so many Christians, we find ourselves paralysed by the good options in front of us. We're afraid we might let God down, in fact, or terrified that that's what we've done in the past. 
when, as best as I can tell, what godly, faithful Christians the world over long to do is simply bring honour and glory to Jesus. That's what Paul's prayer was in Colossians chapter 1, the first of the readings. I've printed just a short passage there for you on your handout. Paul says, We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will. Why? So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way. Paul continually prays this prayer for the Colossians, not because we're afraid of stuffing up, but because we really, we really want to live a life that's worthy of God and please Him in every way. Isn't that what you want to do? Uh, So my goal for these next three weeks is to build up and encourage every one of us that we can do just that. We can live a life that's worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way uh, because our God promises to show us how we might do just that. Okay, have a look at the handout. Here's what I'm going to talk about. Firstly, uh, some definitions over the page. I want to talk about the mystery of God's will. And then thirdly, I want to draw some implications for us from this first talk. But to start with some definitions, uh, you'd be aware if you've read your Bible at all that the reference to God's will in the Bible has a number of different meanings. Uh, And it's really important for us to be clear about what particular meaning is on view in any passage that we might understand what the author is trying to say. In summary, there's two main ways in which the phrase God's will is used in the Bible, and in particular in the New Testament. And I've listed them there for you. The first is God's sovereign will, and the second is God's moral will. Now, let's start with God's sovereign will. God's sovereign will, and here's the blank for you to fill in. God's sovereign will is what God says must happen. God's sovereign will is what God says must happen. What must take place. There's a couple of passages which I've given you as examples of the way in which the New Testament uses this sense of God's will about what must take place. So take, for example, Acts chapter 4, which I've printed there. Here the apostles are reflecting on Jesus' death. And they say, indeed, verse 27, indeed Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So the picture here is of those who've allied against Jesus, they have a plan, but it's not actually their plan, it's something that God said must take place. You see that also in Philippians chapter 2, which was the last of the readings uh, that Simon brought to us. Philippians chapter 2 verse 9, after Jesus uh, had been crucified... Verse 9, God exalted him to the highest place and he gave him the name above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul is saying here that because Jesus died and rose again and is now at the right hand of the Father, every knee must acknowledge that he is Lord of all. And we'll come back to what that looks like in a little while, but for now you can see here is one use of the meaning of God's will, His sovereign will, what God says must take place. The second way in which God's will is described or used in the New Testament is in terms of His moral will. 
And here, the blank for you to fill in is, God's moral will is how God wants us to live. How God wants us to live. By contrast with God's sovereign will, which is about what God says must take place, when it comes to God's moral will, evidently, you and I have a choice as to whether or not we will live that way. A couple of passages there, again, as examples. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says, This is good, pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Here's a description of what God says about how we ought to live, but evidently, sadly, many do not. And likewise, in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3, speaking particularly about Christians now, it's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. These are descriptions of how God wants us to live, His moral will, but clearly, sadly, many choose not to. Okay, now I want to start there by getting some definitions straight so that when we come to the particular passages, you can ask yourself which meaning of will is on view here. Uh, but before we come to that, I do want to draw one implication, and that's at the bottom of the handout. Uh, one implication is that as you look through the pages of the New Testament in particular, what you discover is that God does not have a detailed and discoverable plan for your life. God does not have a detailed and discoverable plan for your life. Now, I'm going to pause here and explain what I mean by this, because this, I think, is a misconception that many Christians labour under. Uh, this is what um, has been referred to as the bullseye approach to guidance and decision-making, hence the picture of a little bullseye at the bottom there. Uh, as I look around the room, some of you are sort of nodding, you kind of are familiar with this idea. This is the idea that God has one particular plan for your life, and what you need to do is, with fervent prayer, counselling, advice, wisdom, you need to hit that one thing right in the middle, because if you don't, well, I mean, quite frankly... The results could be catastrophic. Somehow you have stepped outside of God's will. This, what is called the bullseye approach, actually I think is deeply unhelpful, let alone just outright wrong. It's unhelpful for a number of reasons. The first, let me run you through a few of them. The first is this bullseye approach is, I think, unworkably impractical. It's unworkably impractical. So, come back to my dilemma in Woolworths the other day and finding shampoo. Ought I have sat down in the middle of the aisle, turned my mind to prayer, laid out a fleece perhaps, waited to see which of the shampoos God was leading me towards? Well, I suppose I could have, but that's probably about the only thing I would have accomplished in that particular day, I suspect. Because in the end, the sense that you must discern God's will for every decision you have to make, well, where do you draw the line? It's deeply impractical. The second reason, and this is actually much more serious, is it places, I think, a terrible burden. It places a terrible burden on Christians who long to live a life that's pleasing of the Lord to have to get every single decision right, lest in some way you disappoint our great God. And the third reason why I think this is uh, an inappropriate and an unhelpful way to approach the topic of guidance is because, and um, 
at the risk of sounding a bit crass here, surely God has better things to worry about than what kind of shampoo I choose. I mean, to put it really bluntly, surely God has better things to worry about. Or you might say, given the almost universal angst amongst Christians when it comes to the topic of guidance, I think you probably have to conclude that God's not very good at communicating. He's not very good at letting us know what he wants. Unless we've approached it in the wrong way. That is, there is not a detailed and discoverable plan for every aspect of our lives. So here's what I want you to do with the pens that you're holding in your hands. I want you to put a big cross through the bullseye. Go on. So it's not a Bible, so you can cross it out. Put a big cross through it. Because this is not the way in which the Bible speaks of God's leading and guiding. Now, I do want to make sure you've not misheard me here. I am not saying... God doesn't care about the details of your life. I'm not saying that. Because in Matthew chapter 10, we hear Jesus draw the comparison between people and birds. And he says, if your Father in heaven knows every detail that happens, even to the birds of the air, surely he cares about us. He does. He cares about us deeply, enough, in fact, to send his own Son for our redemption. But that's not the same thing as saying that therefore God has a plan for the minutiae of your life that you must discern and follow lest you step outside of his will. Okay, with me so far? I've kind of of sort of launched into it and tried to start by giving some definitions and explain the framework. What I want to do for the rest of this talk, and in fact the rest of this series, is I want to talk about God's sovereign will for today... And then he talks two and three, I want to talk about his moral will. Okay, So that's kind of an, an outline of where we're going. Turn over the page and uh, we'll move a little faster here. Uh, the mystery of God's will to unite all things under Christ. Now, at this point we come to Ephesians chapter 1 and that terrific passage which was uh, the middle and uh, third of our readings. Let me say just a couple of things about Ephesians chapter 1. The first is that when it refers to the mystery of God's will, uh, the word mystery there um, isn't so much the sense of a, a, a riddle or a whodunit that is something mysterious. Rather, when it talks about the mystery of God's will, it's saying something that you didn't know before has now been revealed. Something you didn't know before has now been revealed. The mystery of his will is what Ephesians chapter 1 is about. Uh, But, you notice there in verse 3, it summarises the extraordinary blessings that God has lavished upon us. Uh, Some of them you heard in the passage that Simon read. He has chosen us to be holy and blameless in his sight. What a blessing. What great comfort for anyone who has a guilty conscience. In Jesus, we can be holy and blameless in God's sight. Uh, He's adopted us as sons, as children. What great reassurance for anyone who has ever felt alone or alienated or who craves acceptance. Verse 7 speaks of redemption by his blood, the forgiveness of sins. 
this is for anyone who has ever tried and failed to make amends for their mistakes. These are the extraordinary blessings that God has lavished us on, uh, lavished on us in Jesus. But his conclusion actually comes in verses 9 and 10. And this is the part I printed there for you on your handout. Have a look at what Paul says. With all wisdom and understanding, God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfilment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. What's the mystery of God's will? He's bringing unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And just pause for a moment and reflect on what Paul is saying here in verse 10. He's saying that God's plan in us is not just for you and for me. It's not even just for every person. It is for all things. Everything in all of creation, all beings, human and non-human, everything is to be united under the Lordship of Jesus. Clearly, this is a description of God's sovereign will, isn't it? What must take place? And so on your handout there, I've given you uh, what I think is the key to this whole series. See, when Christians ask questions about guidance and decision-making, often we're asking things like, God, what should I do with my life? That's usually what the guidance question looks like for Christians, and sure, perfectly reasonable question to ask, but I've called this series Gospel-Driven Guidance because Gospel-Driven Guidance says, God, remind me what you are doing in all of creation. Remind me what you are doing in all of creation. It's really interesting that in Ephesians chapter 1, we're in a series that's all about decisions and choices. In Ephesians chapter 1, the only person who chooses anything is God. He chooses us to be holy and blameless in Christ. Now, why is that significant? Well, let me give you an illustration that perhaps will help make sense of this. Uh, Imagine if you were, uh, if you will, that you were uh, in the armed forces, gathering together in the final briefing in the briefing room before the final push to retake your homeland that has been overrun by the enemy. You're gathered there in the briefing room. Everyone is both excited and nervous, but above all, what you want to hear is, what's your assignment? What's the part that you're going to play in this great enterprise? And that's the question that you want to know. But how does the general always begin? They always begin with the big picture. Here is what we are doing so that you might understand the part that you play. The reason why we've begun this series with God's will for all things is that before we turn to the question of what assignment do we have, we want to hear what God is doing. 
He is uniting everything in heaven and on earth, human and non-human, under the lordship of Jesus. Now, that does have an implication, and one of the implications is why? Why does God choose to act in this way? Why does he disclose to us the grand picture before he tells us about the details of our lives? And I printed the question there for you on your handout. To put it slightly differently, why doesn't God just tell us what he wants and then use his divine power to compel us? I mean, surely that would be more effective, right? There'd be no chance of us ever letting him down. Well, to try and answer that question, I guess what I'd like to do is to try and feel out the implications of God acting in the way in which he does. I think in the end, the reason why God doesn't force us to act in a particular way, but gives us a freedom to choose, ultimately what he's doing is he's honouring and upholding our humanity. It's much better than the alternative, actually. You and I, we are not puppets on the end of someone else's string. We're not just actors in a play that are reading out predetermined lines. We are, rather, free agents who can make choices and who can bear responsibility for them as well. And I think we know that because instinctively we know that in some circumstances there must be more than one way in which you can please the Lord. There must be. There must be more than one choice that is worthy of the Lord and pleasing in his sight. Again, perhaps an illustration will help make this clear. A couple of years ago, I was talking to a friend of mine uh, who is a pastor here in Adelaide, and he was talking to me about how he was considering, should he remain a pastor in Adelaide, or should he go and be a missionary in the Middle East? Pastor in Adelaide, missionary in the Middle East. The thing is, as best as I could tell, both are God-honouring, Christ-exalting choices, which means, I think, that my friend must be free to decide. Because if somehow you conclude that only one was in God's will and the other isn't, somehow our thinking must be flawed. Back to the bullseye then, if God doesn't have a detailed and discoverable plan for every part of our life, instead of us worrying, uh, instead of us worrying and struggling, am I making the choice that with, that's within God's will? Instead, we have freedom to ask the much more liberating question, which is, whatever I choose... How do I conduct myself in a manner that's worthy of the Lord? Again, illustration. Have a look at the picture. Now, you've been looking at that. Someone tell me, what's the picture of? Anyone? It's a picture of Adelaide. That's right. Um, And I put the picture there because, um, as we all know, Adelaide and the CBD is a perfectly laid out grid, isn't it? Nice and, of course, uh, therefore, it means that 
Imagine you were trying to get from the east to the west of the CBD. Well, the thing about Adelaide is you've got a whole bunch of choices, don't you? There's a whole bunch of different ways in which you could get from the east to west. Now, there are some general restrictions and parameters about how you do so. So, for example, if you're in a car, don't speed. Uh, If you're in a car, don't drive in the bus lane. Uh, Stop at the traffic lights. But overall, there's a freedom to choose your route. Now, some people, to get from east to west, go straight through the middle, through Victoria Square. Uh, Other people go around, they go up North Terrace, if they have a lot of time to spare. Some people choose to ride the bike track. Others hop on the free bus or catch the tram. Whichever way you go, there are some general parameters, but there's a freedom. The question is, how do you head from A to B in a manner that's worthy of the Lord? Now, I realise that at one level, what I'm saying today, for some of us, will be deeply unsettling. It'll be deeply unsettling because to hear that God gives us freedom uh, to use spirit-inspired wisdom, as you've been reflecting on these last few weeks in Proverbs, God giving us freedom to use the wisdom that he grants us, well, quite frankly, it sounds like hard work, doesn't it? Wouldn't it be easier if God just told me what to do? I wouldn't have to think about it quite as much, would I? Or more to the point, I think this is why sometimes we prefer rules and regulations, because if God tells me what to do, then if I do it and things don't work out so well, it's not my fault. I was just following orders. Maybe. So the problem with that, of course, is that it would never help our character to grow. And that's where we're going to get to in talk three. Now, before we come to the last point today, um, let me address one other concern that people often raise. People often say, at the very least, couldn't God lay out all the steps for me up front? Uh, This is for, well, let's be honest, this is for the control freaks amongst us who just want to know about all the steps in the journey ahead before you get to them. Well, again, I want to say, I think it's a kindness of God that he doesn't reveal everything to us. Not at first. I talked recently, I mentioned that I work with university students, uh, and I asked a bunch of our students how they would feel if, in the first week of lectures, in their first year, the faculty came in and gave them all of their assignments for the five years of their degree. Did they think that that was a good idea? Now, this won't surprise you, not a single person thought that was a good idea. Uh, Because, actually... There is a kindness of God in not telling us about everything that we need to know in advance, except for the outcome. See, the one thing that God has told us is the most important piece of information of all. That at the end, all of creation will be united in Christ. And that leads me then to the last point I want to talk about today. Uh, You'll see there, point three, because Jesus will be exalted forever and ever. See, whatever you or I do, 
whatever your I don't do, whatever choice we make, good or bad, successful or not, still, Jesus will be exalted forever and ever. Everything is going to be united under his lordship. And the guarantee of that, we saw in Philippians 2, he died, he rose again, he's ascended at the, to the right hand of the Father, which means the only thing left to take place is for every knee to bow and every tongue acknowledge that he is Lord. The only thing left in God's eternal plan is for Christ to be praised forever and ever. And that means that one day, every knee on earth will bow. Every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. It's just that some people will do it willingly and others unwillingly. For those who do so willingly, it's because they have lived all their lives in a manner that's worthy of him, seeking to please him. And so at last they will stand and receive that great commendation, well done, good and faithful servant. For others, they'll still bend their knee before Jesus, but they'll do so unwillingly as one final act of defiance, like a general whose army has been overrun, but still refuses to admit defeat. That has two implications for us. I've listed both there on your handout. The first is about stress and uncertainty when it comes to decision-making. Most Australians, I think, irrespective of stage of life, are deeply worried and anxious about the future. Whether they're baby boomers or millennials, I think most people, certainly the ones I meet, are stressed and anxious about what lies ahead. And to be honest, so they ought to be. Given the chaos and unpredictability of our world. But the thing is, we Christians need not be like that. In fact, we ought not be like that because we know the end from the beginning. And that means we can embrace with joy the God-given freedom of knowing that whatever particular decision we're about to make, still, the final outcome isn't going to change. Jesus will be exalted forever and ever. And in many ways, the big idea of this talk is that that certainty, knowing the final outcome, it really ought to reduce our anxiety levels about whatever concern is in our mind today or tomorrow in this week ahead. It's not saying that we become fatalistic uh, or apathetic about the future. Rather, this series ought to give us more confidence in God's plan for all things, in God's plan for you and for me, not less. Because whatever we do, succeed or fail, that end result is not in doubt. And the second implication then, if Jesus will be exalted forever and ever, is about our ambition and our desire. Our ambition and desire for the good things of this world. Uh, to put it slightly differently, you and I, what we've seen today, we're part of a grander story 
Our individual lives of 70 to 90 years, they belong to a greater gospel enterprise. That's the enterprise of uniting all things under Jesus. And surely, that ought to shape the way in which we frame our ambitions and our dreams. That ought to have something to say about what we desire in our lives. We ought to enjoy with thankfulness the good things of this world that God gives to so many of us here in Adelaide in such abundance. But neither ought we forget what God says he will do for all things. He's going to bring everything under the Lordship of Jesus. And that means that our lifelong prayer and desire is that as many knees as possible bow willingly with great joy, not in defiance to the bitter end. That's the reason why, many of you know this, the church that planted this church started praying on the first Sunday it met that it would plant another church. Because in the end, our great desire is that as many knees would bow out of choice, not in rebellion. After all, it'd be pretty strange to live your whole life delighting only in the good things of this world, all the while unaligned, or worse, at cross-purposes with God's sovereign will for all things. Can you see how Jesus' inevitable and eternal exaltation means that we're being asked to frame our decisions about career and house, our decisions about family and retirement, our decisions about lifestyle and suffering. We're being asked to frame them in accordance with God's will for everything to submit to Christ. And so, for one last time, guidance asks, God, what do I do with my life? Gospel-driven guidance prays, God, Show me how your plan to bring everything together under Jesus helps make sense of my circumstances. So I might live a life that's worthy of you and pleases you in every way. Actually, that's the most wonderful kind of freedom I think that's being described. It's a freedom that enables us to thrive. It's a freedom that says the fate of the kingdom of God is not in our hands, but nevertheless we are free to give our best, certain the end result is never in doubt. It's a great hymn that was significant for me in thinking about how I would spend my life. What can we do in God's work to prosper and increase the kingdom of the living God, the reign of the Prince of Peace? What can we do to hasten the time the time that will surely be when the earth will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Well, I want to finish by asking, will you kneel today? What I mean by this is that the kingdom of God imagery, I think, 
uh, leads to the takeaway that I want from today's talk. Uh, it continues that war theme. Uh, it's the picture at the bottom of your page of a knight who kneels before his king saying, I don't know what it is that you'll ask of me, but nevertheless, I pledge my life to you because I know that you are worthy and I want to please you. And I'm saying that from today and every day since, uh, subsequent, I will live for your honour and your glory, not my own. You kneel because kneeling signals your intention to live for his kingdom in the most powerful way possible. And the thing is, it's never too late to enlist or to re-enlist. That is, even if you've already made this decision, it's one you make each day. Uh, what do you do whenever the king enters the room? You kneel again. And so in a moment, I'm going to invite you to do just that with me. To kneel and to say together the most powerful pledge of allegiance that's ever been written. It's there printed on your page. And we're going to finish our time by doing this. So uh, in a moment, I'm going to ask you, literally, physically, to get out of your chairs and kneel with me. Uh, sorry, if you're able. I realise that for some of you, if you kneel, you might not get back up again, so don't do that. <laughs> but for the able-bodied amongst us, if this is your intention to live for God's honour and glory, for the exaltation of the Lord Jesus, then join me in kneeling, and we'll say together the words from Matthew 6, which are slightly different from the words that you're probably familiar with. Uh, so have that in front of you. If you'd like to do that now, join me in kneeling, then we'll pray and we'll finish this time together our father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one amen there was one question that came in uh, the question was uh, is it biblical to think that god uh, can construct circumstances sometimes to direct your decisions uh, and they give as the example the phrase that we often hear about God opening doors and God closing doors. Um, thank you to the person who's asked the question. Uh, I'm going to say two things about it. Uh, the first is, um, yes, I think we do see times, particularly in uh, the Acts of the Apostles, where God very explicitly opens doors and closes doors. In fact, that almost that exact language is used to describe uh, Paul, one of Paul's missionary journeys, and God does seem to be directing circumstances. Um, so absolutely yes. Uh, what I've tried to say today, though, is that um, if, we, if we spend all our time trying to work out what door God is opening or closing before we do anything, uh, I think that's actually both impractical and in the end it distracts us from the main question, which is, Whatever decision that gets made, how do we conduct ourselves in a manner that's worthy of the Lord and that's pleasing to him in every way? And over the next two weeks, I'm going to talk a bit more about that. So the second thing is, and this is really, this is a cheap preacher's trick. Come back next week. Because uh, we're actually going to look particularly at some of the passages in the Old Testament that Christians often refer to. I, I hinted about one before, the idea of laying out a fleece, uh, which you see with Gideon. You know, is that a, is that an, um, is that a legitimate way to seek God's direction? 
And also we're going to look at the episode in Acts chapter 1 where the apostles are trying to find a replacement for Judas and we see that they cast lots. Um, is that, again, a way that we ought to go about discerning God's moral will for our lives? So thanks to the person with the question. I hope that's helpful. If you have more that you want to chat about, come grab me afterwards. Thanks very much.